Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Stephen Carter OBE, hotel legend and pillar of Scottish hospitality. Coming up on today's show... Stephen wastes no time in getting stuck in. Oh, my, my father's a Yorkshireman. Ah, yes, there's something good about you. Phil attempts to change the theme of the show. But anyway, I mean, I can't make this 45 minutes about food. And Stephen demonstrates that you never really know who you're dealing with. And then he presented me with his card. <laughs> and he was head of security for the King of Jordan. All that and so much more as Stephen talks us through his epic story and journey to date. Stephen continues to do exceptional work within hospitality and is a deeply respected member of the hospitality family. He has stories coming at us from all angles, built across an enviable career of more than 40 years. A huge thank you to him for making time for the chat. If you're enjoying the shows, we'd love for you to give us a like and a share across your favourite social channels. And don't forget to leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Let's share the positive journeys of the people from this wonderful industry. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today, we have another legend in our midst, and I'm delighted to be stepping back over the border, in my head at least, to chat to today's guest. He's got a long list of, well, many, many achievements and roles from a career spanning over 40 years, and was once described as somebody as having hospitality in his soul. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Stephen Carter, OBE. Thanks, Phil. And thank you for the welcome. And can I say welcome back to Scotland, which is really your homeland. So Indeed, in my head. You're in here head. in spirit. Yes, indeed. Great. Always there in spirits. Always there in spirit. Where Where are you today? Where are you basing yourself uh, today? I'm in Apalago. Uh, we just live in a place called Apalago, which is on the east nook of Fife, which is very beautiful. We overlook. We're about 80 feet in uh, above sea level, I guess, so no chance of flooding, but we overlook the Firth of Forth and every glorious sight that that gives us. Yeah. Uh, for golfers, it's just great because we overlook directly into Muirfield and Archerfield, two great golf courses, and of course, Gullen as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, well, it's a part of the world that you seem to have uh, definitely... Uh, are you born and bred there, or is it just somewhere that you've grown an affinity for? Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I'm a Yorkshireman through and through, a thousand percent a Yorkshireman. Never deny you your really? birthright. Yep. Absolutely. Well, my father's a Yorkshireman. So ah, there yes, there's something good about you then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I always said, I actually used this line at my uh, my wedding speech that uh, as the uh, as the son of a, a Yorkshireman and a Scottish woman, I was a little bit disappointed that so many people turned up to my wedding. Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, there's a bit of a reputation on both sides of the border, but it's actually not true. Well, I'm I'm married to an Aberdonian, and that's that's like a Yorkshireman with the last ounce of generosity squeezed out of him. So uh, <laughs> we have great housekeeping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and my wife's in charge of that. Right, got you. Great, yeah. So, well, how are you anyway? I'm pretty well, thanks. We are uh, coping with the pandemic, and life is pretty busy, um, and we're just keeping going. I'm, yeah, I'm in semi-retirement, I guess. That's the, the right mode to say. Right. And have been for the last couple of years, but uh, still very active on the hotel scene, particularly in Scotland, and uh, active in the tourist scene as well. Uh, one of the things I do at the moment is that I'm chairman of the Five Coast and Countryside Trust. Yeah. Which, which is hugely popular at the moment because, of course, 
people both in Scotland and England have nowhere to go. So the coastal path is terrific and the recreational areas that we look after in Fife are terrific as well. So we've been working very, very hard in that sector. Yeah. Yeah, you're not actually a million miles away from where I, I spent the first part of my life. I was um, Perth born and bred, but we used to, to holiday to the to the East Coast uh, for long weekends and things like that. And I mean, St. Andrews obviously is kind of the, the, what, the high profile destination, but along that coastline, it really is stunning. Yeah, well, we're, we're 12 miles from uh, St. Andrews, so that's where we right. live. And between us and St. Andrews, yeah, we've got some fabulous past. In the past, they would have been fishing villages, but now they're just destinations for people to come stay at weekends and enjoy the coast, right. enjoy the sea and enjoy the views and eat great seafood. Great seafood. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, Scotland's renowned as having the, the greatest seafood in the world. Mm. I think um, other places would probably say the same if they were passionate about it. But uh, um, yes. I tend to side with, with Scotland on that one. Nothing better than a lobster or a langoustine pulled out of the North Sea. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, our, our langoustines are, are coveted the world over. Mm. But anyway, I mean, I can't make this 45 minutes about food. But <laughs> yeah. um, Well, but, keep but selling, keep not, selling. Yeah. We need more visitors in the East Nook. Yeah, yeah. It was Ely, actually. I've just remembered yep. it was Ely that we used to, to go to. A lovely beach there. Oh, that's and... the next village along. That's beautiful. Great golf yep. course. Yeah. Very, very expensive, Ely, now. It's become it the, really? haunt, the haunt of second homes for the affluent from Glasgow and Edinburgh in particular. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I can see why, oh. frankly. it's, uh, it's a, It was a stunning place, 20 well, God, it's yeah. longer than that ago. But anyway, uh, let's move on. Great. Well, I mean, I'd mentioned at the beginning that you've had a, a career over of over 40 years in the industry. So take us all the way back to the beginning of that, because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's quite easy to learn about what you've done in your, you know, the, the latter half of your career. But how did you get into hospitality in the first place? I'm not really too sure, except I can remember from about the age of 10 or 11, I wanted to get into catering. I think, first of all, I wanted to be a chef, and then I realized that they had to work very hard. So <laughs> I took the next option, was to, which was to be a hotel manager. And I, I never really wavered in my ambition in that respect. Uh, I guess, uh, well, I just, just wanted to do it. And I'm the youngest of a family of four. Right. My, my three siblings were all extremely intelligent and very clever and all got to grammar school and university quite easily, whereas I failed my 11 plus, if people can remember the 11 plus of those days, so I didn't have the opportunity of that. But right. my parents were always very keen that uh, I aimed to get to university. So at the right time, I applied to Surrey University and Strathclyde University, which were the only two places of higher education that actually did hospitality in those days and I, and I went to Surrey yeah. I can't remember who it was that I was speaking to I think was it Andrew Coggins I think perhaps uh he was talking about the when he was getting into to hospitality there was literally two places in the UK that you could go and do it and it, it well it certainly feels that that's come on a bit since yeah. then yeah increased um, enormously yeah yeah which is right and proper. So Absolutely. Well, so, yeah. it, you know, it's, uh, it's the greatest career in the world. So I chose, so you're absolutely right. I chose to go to London because I just thought that uh, London was the epicenter of hotels in those days. And uh, mm. yeah, got my degree in there. And then in those days, it was just, it was 
just about late 60s and 70s, and the government had this thing called the Hotel Incentive Act. Okay. They were trying to increase the number of hotels in the country as a whole. And there was an incentive grant. I forget how much it was now. I think it was about £1,000 per bedroom that they were putting together. And the government would give you £1,000. It wouldn't buy much more now than the wallpaper for the bedroom. Yeah. But it would help construct more hotel rooms. And one of the hotel companies that was fast to pick up on it was Scottish Newcastle Breweries. And they owned Thistle Hotels at that time. Okay. They had five and they wanted to expand their hotels more into England. So they made a great play for us in the final year at university. And uh, I applied to them and got accepted. Thinking I would get a brand new hotel in Liverpool or Luton or Nottingham, some of those great English cities. And Mm. ended up going to the Golden Lion Hotel in Stirling, (laughs) which which I thought thought after getting a degree, I, I thought, oh, fancy ending up in a pub. But Golden Lion Hotel is quite a famous hotel going way back past Robbie Burns's time on the high street in Stirling. Really? And wow. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I did nine months there and then went on to the Strathspey Hotel in Aviemore. And my love affair with Scotland began. And I've never really looked back on that. I, most of my working career then has been north of the border. Right. Yeah. Well, you certainly, your, your accent has, uh, has picked up the, the locality uh, of where where you've based yourself, that's that's for sure. Well, you definitely don't have the Yorkshire in you anymore, <laughs> accent accent wise. Hey, anyway, hey lad, there's a lot of Yorkshire in me. Still, so <laughs> don't worry about that. But one of the things is that uh, if you want to get on with people, then you do pick up the affectations when you're communicating with people, and you yep. you pick up some of the gist, and that's the way it's gone. Yeah, absolutely. My um my wife always reminds me that um my my accent has softened greatly. Uh, over the years, because I, I now base myself in uh, in the south, I'm in and around London. As soon as I head back over the border, all the officers and eyes come back out. Aye. Yep, aye, that's right. Aye. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear it. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So, so, um, so I did a few years with Thistle, and I, I really, uh, I could see most of my colleagues that had joined about the same time as me getting general managers' jobs and. The company kept saying to me, oh, hold on, hold on, we, we will have something for you. And I was getting a wee bit impatient, and then I was offered a job in um, in the Seychelles. And oh, wow, God, that's a as, bit, bit as different. food and beverage manager, yeah. And I accepted that and was going to go. And then my general manager then, who was a real institution of his own, a chappie called John Furlong, an absolutely marvellous man, rang me up early one morning, which was quite unusual. He rang me up before nine o'clock and said, I can get you a general manager's job in uh, Holiday Inns, which was a really uh, much higher end company than possibly it's perceived to be today. Right. I can get you a general manager's job immediately. So I said, oh, right, Mr. Furlong. And he said, do you want it? And I said, yes, Mr. Furlong, I'd love it. So he arranged an interview for, uh, I always remember this bit, he arranged an interview with the then district director, Chapical Paddy Dignam, who sadly died now, but he he flew to Newcastle to, to interview me because I was working at the Gosforth Park Hotel in Newcastle at the time. Right. And John Furlong went to the airport to pick him up, picked him up and was uh, driving back to the hotel when he, he rang and said... Um, I hope you've got some champagne in Mr. Dickman's uh, suite. And I said, yes, I, I do. I have plenty of champagne in the suite. I put a bottle in and a backup. 
and he sort of said, I told you to put some proper champagne in that sweet. So I got the message that I was supposed to put more than two bottles in. So I put in three or four bottles. Mr. Right. Dignam arrived. Uh, he went to his suite. I went up to see him, very nervous because I was just being interviewed for my first general manager's position and sat in the suite with him. And he interviewed me and uh, suddenly there was a rat-a-tat at the door and two or three young ladies at the door who said, oh, is this the party? It's Mr. Dignam here. So in the middle of in the middle of this interview, we were joined by several people who'd come to have a party with Mr. Dignam as well. So, oh, wow. <laughs> which was rather a bizarre beginning. Yeah, that's, that's certainly unique, yeah. unique interview style, that so, one. So I, I did end up getting the job in the end. Right. And that was the opportunity to open the first holiday in, in Scotland. Okay. And that was in Bucksburn, Aberdeen, just at the height of the oil industry. Right. Um, yeah. At that time, there were only two companies in Holiday Inns working in this country. There was either Holiday Inns Incorporated, which was the parent company, or Commonwealth Holiday Inns of Canada, which was the Canadian company, which okay. was a franchise. And what had actually happened was that uh, both these companies had started working in the UK and the Americans realized that they weren't making a very good job of it in relation to what the Canadians were doing. So they asked the Canadians to run the Inc. hotels for two or three years and then they saw what a great job the Canadians were doing and thought, oh no, we want our hotels back and we will open a hotel in Aberdeen. So that's exactly what they did. Right. And so I began uh, a relationship working with Holiday Inns in, in Inc., as it was called, and uh, that was an American company. And most of my career through the years has then been coincidentally with American companies. Right. But all yeah. in the UK. Yeah. I actually, I remember I did a, a student exchange to America at the age of 19 and I worked in a motel, just a, an independently run motel. And down the road, it was on a, a main highway in New Jersey, so it was the kind of place that people stopped off on long journeys. Um, and there was a Holiday Inn down down the road. And it was the first instance that I can remember having been a, a young lad who was brought up on a, a, an island uh, on the west coast of Tyree. The first time that I can remember going, wow, look at this you know, pronounced hotel industry. And Holiday Inn, as you said, the, the respect around that brand out there at, the, at that time, and this was sort of mid-90s for me, was was very high i think it's it's now it's become a kind of big behemoth now isn't it and been absorbed yeah, by yeah. by much larger groups but um but back then yeah it was uh well, it was, it was a respected brand even when i joined them and that would be 77 they were the largest hotel company in the world but they had 1760 right. hotels i can remember that wow which was interesting because 1760 now is dwarfed by some of the numbers that these yeah as you say, Bermoths now have. Yeah. But it was interesting because before you could run a holiday and you had to graduate uh, as an innkeeper because that was the title. They didn't call you general manager. And you right. had to graduate uh, from Holiday Inn University, which in those days meant going over to Memphis, Tennessee, to this university place, which was just like a university, and being lectured for about four weeks on how to run hotels, how to keep swimming pools, uh, etc. Right. Uh, great along, experience. Along with about 30 other people. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. 
I don't think they do it that way nowadays, but I still think you've got to go through a bit of a training course with them. Right. Yeah. It's quite good. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, coming at it from wherever you're coming at it, that it kind of gets you on board with the, the Holiday Inn way straight away. Yeah. So I went up to Aberdeen and uh, we were actually taking over what had previously been a Sheraton Inn and wasn't operating the way that the owners of the property wanted it to be. So we went in and we bought the hotel from the owners so it was wholly owned by Inc. But it was just at the time when oil was big and nobody really looked at budgets. You know, we ran, right. we ran, that, we ran that hotel at something like about 120% occupancy, seven days a week. It was just terrific right? because all the oil men would book rooms. And then, of course, some would get stuck offshore. Some would never make it up to Aberdeen. So you were double selling rooms virtually the whole time. It was terrific, mm. terrific fun. <laughs> Yeah, I could, well, I bet the ownership would have uh, thought you were amazing. Well, it was fairly successful in its own way, I think, at that time. And then, of course, mm. the Canadians looking in, the Canadian side of Holiday Inns looking in thought, hmm, we need some of that. So they then built another Holiday Inn. So for a while, there were two of us. Right. And we got on very well. I mean, the Canadians were very good hoteliers. Yeah. Well, they've been responsible for some wonderful brands yeah, down yeah, the years. Yeah. So we we had some good fun running that. I mean, I'll never forget the opening of the hotel because I was worried that my team would really lack morale and might be hitting morale. So uh, we organized a cocktail party for the Canadians team to come down from their hotel in Dice to Bucksburn, which is where our hotel was situated in Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. and give them a real good cocktail party. And I can always remember addressing my team saying, now, these chaps are going to come down for a welcome cocktail party. We have to see that they leave here a little tipsy. But if any of you are tipsy, then don't bother coming to work the next day. So we right. did a party that was pretty good. And then they invited us back. And I thought again, well, all my team are going to go into this fabulous new hotel that's just about to open. They'll, they'll suffer a wee bit with morale and so forth. So we hired a fire engine and gave everybody helmets and uniforms that we borrowed from the local fire brigade. And everybody had to have a bell or a siren. And we just went up to the hotel to our return cocktail party, ringing the bell of the fire engine and really making a noise. It was good fun. Yeah. Those are the good day, good fun days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, what happened? Well, where so did you go next? I did, right. I did quite a few years with Holiday Inns because it was a really good company. It gave me a really good grounding in, in the business aspect of things. Yeah. And uh, I moved on from Aberdeen to Leicester, where I was going to stay for quite some time. But things worked out that within nine months, I moved again quite quickly, or nine, ten months, moved to Birmingham. Okay. And I became the 13th general manager of the Holiday Inn in Birmingham, which was nine and a half years old. Okay, that, well, that tells a story <laughs> straight away. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was an interesting few years. And I, I actually did eight years there in the end and oh, wow. really came to enjoy uh, Birmingham. Right, uh, yeah. And everything that Birmingham offered. Why was there such a turnover of uh, of GMs at that time in that property? I think there was uh, there were real difficulties uh, with the property. It just never seemed to be able to stabilize. 
right. managers came in and the Americans actually brought American managers in and they didn't settle properly in the UK. Right. The key word there is, uh, is stability, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the, the, it's very difficult to, to get rid of the, the negative if there is no stability. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was good fun. And then it was back to Scotland after Birmingham. Okay. I did a few months with Stackis at the time, who were just going through quite a few problems. Uh, and I was offered a job by Queen's Motorhouses, running a hotel down by the side of the Clyde, which became the Motorhouse, Motorhouse International, right. which was one of the bigger ones. And uh, that was great fun. That was an intercontinental hotel which had been taken over by Boathouse. Intercontinental hadn't really made a great success of it. And we had great fun in, in uh, building a team there, mm. putting it all together and making it the best hotel in Glasgow for some, for some years. That's now a Crown Plaza. Um, right. But at the time, it was the Albany that was thought to be the best. And then there was the... I think it was the Hospitality Inn, which had previously been a ski and do, had opened as a ski and do right. hotel. And we took them on and I think we beat them. Uh, we had a great team there. Uh, one of the things that I've always been fortunate about is that the hotels I've been uh, the boss of usually have been odd fits with the company as a whole. So okay. I've been allowed to do my own thing in taking the product forward and uh, uh, the teams we've managed to build around us have, have done a great job of succeeding those hotels. So we had a good time there. Yeah, I, I mean, if ever there was a, 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 a saying, you know, that the hotel is nothing without the team, isn't it? Yeah. At, at, at the end of the day, and you know, it, it, I think you, you as a leader, have got to take a massive amount of credit for for either putting the team together in the first place or motivating the, the team that's there to, to actually engage in, and get on. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest challenges and one of the, the biggest paybacks of the industry because once yeah. you have a motivated team, it just becomes self-motivating over and over and over again. And it's, yeah. it's just super. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so you were with uh, so houses? So I was then, uh, then they... They, at the time, had done an, ac an acrimonious takeover of a, of a company called Milford Capital. Okay. And included in that package of hotels was the Caledonian in Edinburgh, Yeah, which was interesting. So after I'd been a few years at the uh, Crown Plaza, then I was moved to the Caledonian in Edinburgh with strict instructions that we had to make the hotel profitable and get it recognized and get some business through the door, which we did. And that was great fun as well. And moving from Glasgow to Edinburgh was really quite interesting because, of course, Edinburgh folk didn't necessarily like the Glasgow folk. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I think the feelings mutual uh, mm. as well. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, no, it, it's um, for, for if you think about, uh, you know, they're, they're Scotland's two main cities, I suppose, and, and certainly in population terms, they're so different. Yes, um, you know, absolutely. But so close, actually, in the great scheme of things, they're they're not that far apart. No, forty miles apart, just about. Yeah, yeah. And yet, character-wise, culture-wise, entirely and utterly different. Yeah, and I suppose then, from a, a, a leadership perspective, and also you know how you put a hotel on the map, a very different 
strategy required in both places. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then I was helped a wee bit insofar that uh, Glasgow, we'd had great links to the Scottish Exhibition Centre, which was adjacent to the hotel. Yeah. And when I went to the Caledonian, then um, they just had the Glasgow Conference Centre opening. So there were similar businesses and there were similar opportunities in terms of expanding the business as soon as we got there. Mm. That helped us enormously. Yeah, well, I mean, it's still to this day, it's a massive hub, isn't it, for mm. events and uh, and things. And they have you know, world-class events there. They're not just playing at it. No, they're not. They, they have terrific events. Well, in both, in both cities, they have great events. I mean, Glasgow this year will have COP26, which is... You know, after today, just, uh, the UN has just announced this uh, report today on climate change, and yeah. that will play very much into the COP26 uh, meeting. Mm. We'll make Glasgow very relevant into what's being determined for our futures. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened next? Then I was running the Caledonian, and uh, I was offered an opportunity with a company called Clifton who were wanting to buy a property in the centre of Edinburgh. Right. And did actually go on to buy a vacant office block in Charlotte Square. And they offered me an opportunity to go and open that. But at the time, uh, the company Clifton as a company was just being bought by an American company, Destination Resorts, out of California. Hmm. So the company was sold and the Americans came over, interviewed me and said, well, we're not going to go ahead with the Edinburgh project at this stage, but will you come and work in London? So I went down and did two and a half years in London working with Clifton, which was terrific. What a hotel to work with. So this uh, is uh, Clifton House. This was Clifton House. We had yeah, Clifton yeah, yeah. House. We had Clifton House. We had uh, the Royal Crescent in Bath. And then we had Clifton Townhouse in London. In Right. Sloan Street, just off Sloan Street. Yeah. And the deal with the Americans was that we wanted to expand this brand across Europe and have the culture of Clifton House and take that throughout Europe. But as all these things happen, and that was a good couple of years, but as all these things happen, the economy was getting a bit dodgy internationally at the time. And right. the Americans did what they quite often do. They, they expand abroad, and then as soon as the homeland looks a bit dodgy, then they retract and go back to America. So I could see the writing on the wall there, and I was suddenly approached about uh, coming up to this neck of the woods and uh, here in the East Nook. And there was an opportunity of a new hotel being built, St. Andrew's Bay Resort, which was literally a mile outside St. Andrew's with cliffs, Two, two great golf courses and a lot of function space. And I just couldn't resist getting involved in that. Yeah, It was owned by a chappy called Don Panos and his wife, Nancy. Don was an amazing American who, uh, who was attributed to inventing the tobacco patch. Wow, okay. I can see that he might have made a couple of quid so doing that. He made a couple of quid doing that. You're absolutely right. Uh, he was amazing. He he left university and never graduated from university, and he set up a, a drugs company in West Virginia, which is one of the poorest parts of America, really. Right. And uh, he went to his board after he'd run this for five years, so he was about 
24, 25 at the time, went to his board and said, the future of drugs is in time-release delivery, and that's what we're going to build on. And his board at the time of Milan Pharmaceuticals turned around and said, no, absolutely not. We're not interested. Right. So Don left that company, and he went and flogged the idea of uh, time-release drug delivery all over the major pharmaceutical companies in the States, and not one of them would take up the offer. Is that right? So, yeah. So at about the age of 25, 26, he, his wife, and the kids up sticks and went to Ireland and built a company called Elan Pharmaceuticals in Athlone in Ireland. Okay. And he chose Ireland because they had a ready workforce. He thought there was a great culture of, of wanting to work and industriousness. Mm. And he thought, well, if it all goes wrong, it's a quick hop back to America and I can start and do something else. Yep. And he concentrated on time-release drugs, which, of course, the patch is one of the, the biggest. And um, along the way, he got involved with the tobacco patch. I don't think he finally was responsible for the tobacco patch as such, but... He played his part in it. And what was really interesting was he was allergic to the tobacco patch, so he could never wear it. Oh, irony. He smoked He smoked pretty substantially. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, he's helping other people, though. That's but he was helping could, other people. You could say that's a, a more noble cause yep. than helping yourself. But he was terrific. And he had five kids, and he set all his kids up in, in their own business they wanted to do, four girls and one boy. And he said to his son, son, what do you want to do? And his son said, dad, I'd like to build cars. So he said, okay, let's go and build a sports car. So they built a Panos sports car. Right. And then he said to his son, if we've got a sports car, it'll never sell unless it's got some heritage with it. So let's go and buy the rights to um, Le Mans for the rest of the world. He couldn't buy Le Mans itself, but he bought the rights to the Le Mans name. Right. Throughout the rest of the as world, you do. as you do, and built, and then went on to buy four race courses himself, including um, uh, Sebring in Florida. Right, was one of them, and Sebring in Florida still runs a race, twelve-hour race, not a twenty-four-hour race, called the Petit Le, Le Mans. Right. So he did all that sort of thing, and he built cars, and and actually won at Le Mans several times over, with his front-engined. GT sports car, right? Of which we had to have one in. <laughs> we had one uh, sent to us at uh, Saint Andrews Bay, so we had to garage that for him, right? And he used to really tell me off the whole time because he said, "Stephen, you're not driving that car. You're not driving that car." And I kept saying, "Doctor Panos, a it's a left-hand drive, and B it's such a powerful beast, and C it's got American number plates, so I just attract attention." That's not the point, Stephen. You've got to keep the engine turning. So I want to know it's doing more mileage. So one day I was uh, driving on the road, just heading to an island, and it was drizzly and rainy, and I just turned the car right Of course. Round. <laughs> yeah, and turned the car right round because of the acceleration and so forth, and just thought, no, put it back in the garage. But right. when he'd made his fortune in Ireland, he'd, uh, he'd had a, a Triumph Stag. Yeah. And his wife had a Mini Cooper, so we bought them a Triumph Stag and had it all refurbished for him. 
which he also kept in St. Andrews, and right. his wife, a Mini Cooper. Now, they were fun to drive around. I mean, the stag was just terrific. But Don also, by that time, owned an engine factory in Sussex, which he ultimately moved to Atlanta, and that built all the Indy 500 car engines. So getting a Triumph stag refurbished was pretty simple. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and certainly led a, a pretty diverse life, didn't he, in terms oh, of starting off terrific. with patches and then Great moving guy. into motors. Yeah. I'm guessing that was a, 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 a real passion for him to it was. to go into that and to put that much resource. As was as was wine, as was golf. Right. His best pal was a golfer called Gene Saracen, who was in his 90s, and he said to Gene, what would you like to do, Gene, in, in life? What's your final ambition? And Gene Saracen said, I would love to build a golf course in St. Andrews. Right. So that's what they did. And that was the reason we were in St. Andrews. Right. It was just incredible. He just it's flew incredible. over, bought some land. Uh, the, he found a place with planning permission for a 45-bedroom hotel and one 18-hole golf course. And then he set about buying land round about it and said, nobody runs a 45-bedroom hotel. So he then went on to build a 200-bedroom hotel and right. uh, two golf courses, which are still there today. They're now a Fairmont. It's now right, Fairmont. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I think I know the, the, the property that, that yeah. you're talking about. It's been a while since I've been, but um did drive past it, I think, maybe about six years ago uh, yeah. or something like that. But it just shows you the, the, the power of believing that you that you can do something. Like if you if you properly believe in it, then it doesn't really matter what other people tell you or, or say to you i mean he got rejected by you know big pharmaceuticals that on the face of it would know more than he does mm. but where would we be without these people that that just believe that the vision something yeah. can be possible he used um, to continually that's... talk about dreaming you have to set a time aside time in a day to dream and then like once you've got the dream you go out and achieve it yeah Great guy to work for. He used to say, what I liked about it was he used to say, Stephen, I'm going to give you this hotel. I'm just going to give you this hotel. And all I ask of you is that you run it the best you can. And when you give it back to me, it's a little bit better because you've been there than when I gave it to you. Brilliant. And that was great philosophy of working for him. It was yeah. really good fun. And again, it was a fresh start, so we were able to employ fresh people. We were able to get kindred spirits around us, and we had a great, great team. Yeah, well, back so to team again. Fun. Back to team again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great, and what a cracking story. I love, I yeah. love that. Um, <laughs> how long were you there for? Um, I was there seven years. Seven, just, right. over, just over seven years. It's great fun. And then we sold. He sold to uh, an investment, American investment company, mm. and brought Fairmont in to run the hotel. Right. And that's as up to present day with that hotel. That, that's you up to present day with that hotel, yeah. And then, and then I was approached about going to join DeVere, which had just been bought privately out of public ownership. And that began another wee adventure. But that was right. working for an English company, but... Um, we uh, we set about refurbishing the Cameron House Hotel right at the beginning. I took a corporate job uh, looking after quite a lot of hotels. Mm. But I've never got the same satisfaction out of that. I just think running a hotel is what I really get maximum satisfaction from. 
Yeah. And, you know, dealing with building the team, motivating the team, and uh, getting on with the guests. And you meet some great people in hotels. I mean, hotel guests are just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and if you interact with them, then that brings all sorts of opportunities as well. Oh, absolutely. The um, I think that's the, the pe- thing that a lot of people forget is that generally speaking, you know, you're you're with these people for if you're doing your job correctly, what should be a really enjoyable period of their life. <laughs> and um, some of the stories and some of the characters that you meet uh, along the way, are absolutely, just wonderful. Absolutely. So we built a great team at Cameron House as well, and. Refurbished the hotel before Devere ran into problems. Right. Um, and then, of course, since since I've left, uh, I was very fortunate. I had a great, great deputy, Andy Roger, uh, who was helping me run the hotel. And he stayed. He became general manager. The hotel, the demise of Devere meant that uh, Q Hotels came in to run to run the company and and I thought well, this is an ideal time for me to move on at that time. Yeah. So uh, by that time I've, I've founded my own little company because the chairman of Devere, Andrew Koppel, uh, was kind enough to let me in the last couple of years at Cameron House that I was there. Uh, he allowed me to indulge in one or two other little things. So I became a uh, hospitality advisor for the Clydesdale Bank and the Yorkshire Bank, um, wow. which was a nice little sideline in building the company and so forth. Um, mm. And I, I got involved in quite a few other things. I mean, I think it's important when you run a hotel that you, the hotel has to be part of the, the locale. And I think getting involved with other periphery organizations outside the hotel is not only good for you as an individual, but it's good for your team to see that they need to build contacts outside the norm yep. and gives them other opportunities and also gets the hotel really established and well-grounded in the area that it really is, that it finds yeah. itself. Yeah, and that's not to be overlooked, I think, as well. I mean, that you're ultimately, you're, unless you're a huge, iconic international hotel where you know people will come want to come and work for you from all around the world you know you're looking at your pool of team coming from your surrounding area as well so if you're if you're integrating yourself well into the community and giving things as well as you know taking business from people then it's going to it's going to pay back yeah for sure yeah sure does yeah so I was there, and then I, when I left Cameron House, I did some consulting, and I helped various people along the way. And uh, then I was approached uh, by Herb Kohler of Kohler Corporation in America mm-hmm. to go and help at the Old Course Hotel, which hadn't had a general manager for something like four or five years. And uh, I went and did three years there at the right. old course hotel back in St. Andrews, yep. which was again, back working with Americans and back near my home. Yeah. Here on the East Nook. Yeah. I love how you call it the East Nook. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's going to go with me everywhere <laughs> I go now. Up that part. It's a great um, part of the world. So that brings you up to date, Craigie. That's a long, long potted history. 
Yeah, but I mean, you have worked in some fabulous places. You know, they, they all have their. I mean, I, the talked about iconic world properties. Everybody's heard of the Old Course Hotel, mm-hmm. primarily because of the golf. I would imagine it's it's held some monumental events down the years. Yeah, but nevertheless, you know, they're. they're there's Clifton in there. There's Cameron House. There's the old course. You know, it's yeah. You've 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 knocked off some pretty special places. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been great fun. Yeah, and now and you know you're you're still going at it. You still got your. You're still doing a little bit of kind of consultancy. Still on the doing a little bit of consultancy. Yes, and I'm fortunate. Uh, I'm a director of a hotel in Essex. Uh, spa hotel in Essex. I am also since April this year chairman of a company called Effective Hospitality Management, which is a terrifically exciting company. It's into hotel management of uh, privately owned properties here in Scotland. And mm. um, we have two or three properties already to our bow, two super characters uh, who are well known on the uh, Scottish hotel circuit. John Shevlin and Kevin Keenan, uh, they know Scotland and Scottish hotels backwards and, and they're driving the business and it's great fun to work with them yep. and see how we go. You know, Let's yep. grow and let's see how we go in the future. So an exciting future ahead, particularly over the next few months, I hope. Yep. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm still chairman of the Five Coast and Countryside Trust. Yeah, and I love that. I love the fact that that's because that's you've clearly gotten into that because you love where you live. Well, a, I love where I live, and b, it's tourism related, and it's it's yeah. a benefit to where I live as well. I mean, we opened, we we look after the coastal path first and most obviously, which is uh, one hundred and seventeen miles long, going round from just uh, north of the Fourth Bridge right round to the Tay Bridge and beyond. Mm. Uh, and that's a great walk, great walk. And it's like seeing a mini Scotland when you walk through it. Yeah, I bet. And in addition, we opened uh, another path uh, a couple of years ago called the Pilgrim's Way, which we had to build and negotiate and uh, with all the landowners to build the path through, which goes from North Queen's Ferry to St. Andrews, right. which was the, the old Pilgrim's Way when pilgrims would come and want to go to St. Andrews to look at the, the relics that the cathedral had in those days yeah. of St. Andrew. But, right. um, what's, the, uh, what's the mileage? What's the stretch? That's uh, 79 miles. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. yeah. Right through the heart of Fife, which is even better. Fantastic, Because yeah. we... There's some fantastic scenery in that. There's some great history around it. And uh, it's also helping revive some of the needy, more needier areas of Fife that suffer with low unemployment and uh, were very heavily into coal mining many years ago. But, of course, that's gone by the board now. Some of the communities need help. And the communities have thrown themselves into... Uh, working with us to get this path really done. Right. That's brilliant. So terrific. Yeah, absolutely. And what I really love about your, your story generally is is that that's, you know, that's not bad for, for somebody who wasn't academically gifted way back at the beginning. You know, you're, um, you've forged out an absolutely wonderful career because you've obviously found something you're completely engaged with. Yeah, absolutely. If you do the job you love, you never have to do a day's work in your life. Yeah, and there's nobody lazier than me. <laughs> <I think laughs> I, 
<laughs> well, that, that's definitely going in the intro. That's for sure. No, that's great. And I also love the fact that you, you, you're, you obviously you've you spent quite a lot of your time now in Scotland and on the east coast, but you did move around a bit, you know, as opportunity presented itself to you. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. very which, transient career, which I think you always have to. But I think opportunities are presenting themselves to people as they go along the way. You know, I mean, if I ever accepted that job in the Seychelles, goodness knows where that might have ended. Yeah, of course. That's yeah, a sliding uh, doors so moment there, isn't it? It is. Real sliding doors. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, you've uh, you've been very kind with some stories already. Have you got any uh, more hospitality funny stories that you could share with us or anything where you were completely out your depth um well i think when we opened st andrew's bay that was felt as if we were completely out of our depth because we were driving to open on time and on budget which right. we which we actually did okay uh, and it was quite interesting at the time because we were the second largest construction going on in scotland the largest one being the scottish parliament which didn't open on time and certainly didn't open on budget. So it's <laughs> quite not, interesting. No. So we were bragging away about that. But in order that we met our deadline, I was foolish enough to accept a piece of international business with the Drax Power Company from, and they had delegates coming from all over the world. Right. And uh, we we should have been open three days before all these delegates came in and we were so confident in the team and so eager to get business through the door that we accepted the business. And what we didn't take into account were the foibles that happen when you open a brand new hotel. Right. And we, we had a fire alarm system, which was the latest thing uh, in the industry. And I can remember a, a lead delegation from the company came in from America to uh, stay with us and get ready for the big conference. And the fire alarms kept going. And it was really weird because the fire alarm would go off in one wing and then we'd go and couldn't find a fire. And then the fire alarm would go off in another wing and we'd have to go around and couldn't find that. And the fire brigade was coming and people were getting more and more nervous about this as Mm. time was going on. And after about the fifth and sixth, and the fire brigade hadn't found any fire by this time, we suddenly found a hot wall along one corridor so the fire brigade investigated you know, with the hatchets out and putting a hole in the wall and we suddenly realized we'd put we not only had uk uh, voltage electricity and we'd put in cables to every room that would give american voltage round right and the american voltage had been incorrectly uh, fitted so it was burning up and, and the wires were physically on fire as we were getting the, the hotel ready. So we had to close that, close that down completely, yeah. Re, repatch up the holes that the fire brigade had begun to put in the walls and calmed our guests and our advance party of guests. We had to calm them down. So the next day, the, uh, the alarm goes again. <laughs> and it was another false alarm of a, of a different kind. Right. And uh, by which time... Everybody's very nervous and they're all saying, oh, we're, we've got to cancel the conference. Oh, we've got to ring everybody not to fly in. And they were flying in from literally all over the world to this conference. Mm. And we were not very popular as a hotel, as you can well imagine by this time. And then on the big day when everybody arrived themselves, uh, St. Andrew's Bay had a big atrium. And that's got special fire protection. 
And when the conference was on, we'd organize with the fire alarm company that they would have engineers on site in case anything would go wrong so that we could yeah. close it down. And a fire alarm went off. Oh, and we couldn't turn the darn thing off. And all these people, 200 people are just checking in and the fire alarm is going and all we've got is this woman's voice saying, an emergency situation has arisen, an emergency situation has arisen, please leave the building immediately. Welcome to the hotel. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and then the engineers then came up with a wonderful idea. The, the atrium had great fans in it, so it could extract the air and the smoke. If there was a fire in the atrium, they could extract it through these mm. fans. But then when they managed to shut the alarm off, then the fans started. And so you had the choice of these jet engine type fans in the, in the roof, sucking the air out or the fire alarm. And the engineers just said, it's a new system. We don't know how it works particularly well. <laughs> That's reassuring. <laughs> Which is totally reassuring. So anyway, eventually we got that shut down. We again calmed the guests. Uh, and then the next day, the fire alarm went again. Oh, oh. it's just murder. But oh. the conference went underway. That was the last time right. it went. The conference went underway, and I thought, what on earth? How are we going to retrieve the situation? One of the best things we did was got all the staff together as these guys left because they were all flying in a chartered aircraft from Lucas down to York to go visit the big tracks power, sta uh, power station there. Right. And we got all the staff to clap all the guests out and all the guests took the time to shake all the staff's hand as oh, they nice. left. So it was absolutely a really fantastic motivating experience for the team and got us compliments galore from the, the company. So about three weeks later, I had to go down to Drax Power Station to talk about the bill. And I had an amount of money I was willing to give away in my mind. Right. By recompense. And I went into the boardroom and uh, <laughs> the man in the boardroom just read, the, the, uh, the boss just read all the comments that the visitors had made. Largely good. A couple of criticisms here and there. Yep. And then he said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, this is my proposal. How about this for openness? And I said, this is your bill. This is what I'm willing to knock off the bill. Mm. And I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just looked me in the eye and he said, yep, yeah, I think that's very fair. We'll settle for that. So this is what I want you to do now. I want you to raise the bill. And then I want you to add the money that you've just taken off back on the bill and ensure that it goes to the staff. Oh, that's very cool. Which was really cool. Just swept my feet from underneath me. And then yeah. they presented me with a statue of a golfer to go and put in the front hall as a memento of the first conference that the hotel had held there. Yeah. Brilliant. Which was a great story. Yeah. Very long. Yeah. Sorry, I've taken far no, too long about it. <laughs> not at all. At the, uh, but it's, it's the stories for me that are, are almost the most important part of, of what and why we do or yeah. are in this industry. Uh, because that's uh, another prime example of the fact that you can, with all the best laid plans in the world, there's always going to be something that just pops up that you're not ready for. Uh, and that doesn't matter if uh, you've done done this job for five years or 40 years. You know, the, the, you could do it for the rest of time and there'd still be new things yeah. that, that would come up. But it's your, I think it's your ability to, one, accept that these things happen, but two, is, you know, it's just 
take the the ownership of get it, on with it and yeah yeah and 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 crack on and and get and work around it and what a wonderful end to to that story because that's also great that your guests uh, and that bit, that big piece of business saw the value in that you guys were doing your level best to you know make a, a the best of a bad situation yes i, I always thought that was a, an absolutely wonderful end to that wee story it was yeah. interesting but you know absolutely yeah i have a wee saying and i'm sure if anybody's listening, they'll have heard me say this before. I mean, there's a great saying in the Bible, Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for in doing so, some people have entertained angels without ever knowing so. Very and, good. You know, that's a great, yeah. great saying that I'm always telling my people. And the best example I can think about that was when we just spent way over £50 million refurbishing Cameron House. And, of course, we're wanting to take the, the product up market, so we were looking yeah. for nice cars. I should hope so for that park, yeah. kind of money. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, there's a long story behind that too, but interesting. Yeah. Uh, but suddenly, this motorbike, old motorbike, ended up at the front door. And I'm saying to our concierge, you know, what, what on earth is that motorbike there? Oh, well, this man just came. He arrived and he, he's just wandered into the hotel. He's in mo- motorbike leathers. And I'm saying, for goodness sake, we've got an old beat-up motorbike at the front door. We've got a guy wandering around in leather, motorbike leathers. Well, this isn't the kind of image we now want to portray, that we've put all this money into the hotel. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find this guy, and, and we're wandering around, and he's, he was around the hotel. He paid cash and checked in for the night. And the following morning, he asked to see me, not me, him. Right. Uh, so I thought, oh, well, this is a good opportunity to get this over with. So he said, I think I'm thinking of bringing a party of gentlemen to the hotel. And I said, oh, oh okay. And he said, yes, <laughs> it'll be for a motorbike holiday. I said, oh, okay. And then he presented me with his card. <laughs> and he was head of security for the King of Jordan. And he wanted to oh, bring wow. the King of Jordan and nine guys for a motorbike holiday. And use the hotel right, yeah. as, a, as a base. So immediately, you know, you jump into action and suddenly the, the old motorbike, which was at the front door, was forgotten about. His leathers were ignored and it was, yes, how can we help you? How can yeah. we help you? <laughs> so so he, he described what he wanted and it was fantastic at the end of the day. It really worked. We had this new wing that we got at the hotel. Right. And we put the, we put the entire party in there. And it was the King of Jordan, nine pals, and Harley Davidson delivered 10 new bikes for them to drive and enjoy their trip of Scotland. My uh, the, the, the head of security was an old uh, Metropolitan Police motorcyclist. So he brought his old BSA up to to check the area out and check the hotel out and so on. So mm. that was the old bike at the front. But the rest of the guys had these spanking brand new Harley Davidsons to drive. Amazing. And it was quite a sight watching this take off from the hotel because you, you sort of had your police police car followed by a couple of police motorbikes, then followed by 10 blokes on uh, the, <laughs> the uh, Harley Davidsons, followed by the King's 
own personal DB, uh, you know, Aston Martin, because one of his pals didn't want to drive a motorbike. So he was driving that. Oh, I had to make do with an Aston Martin. Yeah, eh? I had to oh. do, make do with an Aston Martin, followed by, followed by a doctor's car, followed by an ambulance, followed by right. another police car, followed by more <laughs> motorcycles. And I could just envisage this going around Scotland, some of the narrow roads, that, well, you know, half the roads. Yeah, 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 so especially on the West Coast. Yeah. Trying to overtake that lot. It must have been really interesting. But there you go. You know, we never judge a book by its cover. I was exactly. ready to say to the guy, you know, would you mind moving on? And there he presents this. Yeah, absolutely. So you never do I... know where angels come from. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, the uh, it's it's so true, though, right? I mean, we're on the hospitality business. We um, we should, if somebody walks in, we should give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Before before you make judgment, but uh, no, that's great. I, I I have a feeling that that you're probably a walking story. To be honest, I, I look forward to having a a glass of wine with you in person one day and and just what regaling. A great idea. <laughs> Now, I, I can't let the, the conversation end without asking you about your OBE. Um, how did that come about? I, that, that's a very good question, and I can't give you a right answer to it because I don't, okay. know, where, I don't know where it popped up from, but it was for services to hospitality. Yep. I was thrilled and delighted to, to receive it. felt that it was a real honor for not only me, but everybody I'd worked with and also the industry as a whole. Yeah. I suppose some of it, might have been down to the fact that I was chairman of an organization called the Hospitality Industry Trust, which is something uniquely Scottish that we've all been very proud of. And I was chairman of that for 13 years. So I think that might have had something to do with it. And during my time, I've spent quite a lot of time with the Duke of Edinburgh's award in fundraising for that uh, and doing quite a lot of work with that. So maybe that had something to do with it too. Yeah, I, I suppose it's one of those things like like most accolades that are out there. You you probably don't ever put yourself up for any of these accolades. Other people put you up for them, and it's other people that notice the work that you're doing, as opposed to to you just going around applying for awards yeah, everywhere. Well, I hope so. It was it's really quite interesting how how I got to know about it because we were just leaving on holiday. We were going down the Nile in a in one of these cruises yeah and just before we left the house the postman came and he gave me two on her majesty's service envelopes <laughs> and i thought bloody hell oh, God, here we are going on here we are going on holiday and here the taxman's knocking at the door already so yeah so i thought what do i do so i thought i must open them now and i opened one which uh was something to do with tax. And then I opened right. the second one, and then there was this mysterious letter saying, well, the Queen is, mind, or the Prime Minister is minded to ask the Queen to give you an OBE. And the wording of it is so old-fashioned and so wonderful yeah. that you're not quite sure what's being said, but it sort of <laughs> threatens, you, <laughs> threatens you not to say anything, and it, you don't really know it happens until they actually announce it. So right. that gave us six weeks of wondering when it would be announced, if it would be announced. Yeah. And of course, it, it just gave you a prepaid envelope to sign here and put it in the post. So we're on the way to the airport, saw a post box, and I stuck it in the post. To be told by my wife, you're silly. You should have recorded that before, you know, sent it, recorded delivery. 
Yeah. But anyway, they found a home and they gave me an OVE, which I was delighted to accept and really good fun. Yeah, and was uh, was it delivered by Her Majesty herself? No, it was Prince Charles. Right. Prince Charles um, at Buckingham Palace. And then we had a friend take us around to the House of Lords to celebrate there, which was rather nice. <laughs> yeah. Put a good day on it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, well, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I think, you know, you, you clearly are not given that opportunity if you haven't done something that merits, you know, people to sit up and take notice. So I um, I salute you for whatever it was that you did <laughs> that um, that got your uh, got your name on that on the list for for consideration. And, you know, I, I've not I've only known you a, a, a few weeks, but actually you're it's funny. Your name comes up. An awful lot these days, and there's a lot of love for you out there. So, I, uh, you, you clearly are touching the hearts of the right people. Ah, thank you. <laughs> That's very kind. No problem at all. Just before we go, what would you say to to someone who was considering a career in hospitality? Go for it. Go for it. Throw yourself into it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it can be the most rewarding of jobs. If it is actually a job, I mean, it's almost a vocation in some respects. I think uh, if you if you <clears throat> get a kick out of creating experiences for people, if you really enjoy people having fun, go for it, work hard, take the opportunities and make the most of it. Yeah. And I wish them luck. Very good. Great stuff. If people would like to, to get a hold of you to, to chew the fat and learn a little bit more about you and, and what you're up to, what would be the best method for them to do that? I guess, well, my new email is Stephen with a PH at effectivehospitality.co.uk. Wonderful. Well, thank you very, very much for, for okay. coming on and, and sharing your story oh, uh, and some, some mini stories within the story. Been a bit of fun. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm I hope we haven't bored it. your listeners too much. I, uh, I'm sure we haven't. The, um, there's some belters in there, so I, uh, I thank you very, very much and, uh, and wish you a wonderful year ahead. Thanks very much. Take so, care. Thanks, Stephen. Godspeed. All the best. Cheers. 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 Bye-bye. Bye. And there we have it. A massive thank you to Stephen for making time for us and for giving us so many wonderful anecdotes from his stellar career. I'm pretty sure that we didn't even scratch the surface. Don't forget, we'll be back at 8pm next Wednesday with more stories from hospitality. But until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.